You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, great poetry edition, because we are going to start out with one of the most famous poems of its time by the youngest person ever to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, and you are going to have your mind blown. I did not include all the stanzas, because there's a lot of them, but I think Ben's got the first stanza and Jake's got the last stanza, so take it away, Ben. All right. I'm just going to read this with an American accent because that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You may talk a gin and beer when you're quartered safe out here and you're sent to penny fights and Alder shot it. But when it comes to slaughter, you will do your work on water and you'll lick the blooming boots of him that's got it. Now in India's sunny clime where I used to spend my time, a servant of her majesty, the queen of all them black faced crew, the finest man I knew was our regimental beastie Gunga Dean. He was Dean, 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 you limpin' lump of brick dust, Gunga Dean. Hi, slippy hitherow. Wather get it, Penny Lau, you squidgy nosed old idol, Gunga Dean. Good stuff. So then there's several more stanzas, and we conclude with this. He carried me away to where a dooley lay, and a bullet come and drilled the beggar clean. He put me safe inside, and just before he died, I hope you liked your drink, says Gunga Dean. Says. Gunga Dean, please. <laughs> <clears throat> nice, he says. <clears throat> so I'll meet him later on at the place where he is gone, where it's always double drill and no canteen. You'll be squatting on the coals, giving drink to poor damn souls, and I'll get a swig in hell from Gunga Dean. Yes, Dean, 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 you Lazarusian leather Gunga Dean, though I've belted you and flayed you by the living God that made you. You're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. It's important to emphasize that this is all written in crummy dialect. It's cockney. Cockney. So, for example, by the living, L-I-V-I-N, God is G-A-W-D, that made you. Anyway, we're not here to beat up on Rudyard Kipling. Or maybe we are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Rudyard Kipling was <clears throat> quite the man. But for our purpose, and we'll talk about him and his legacy and all that stuff. But for our purposes, he wrote the poem Gunga Dean, which inspired the movie Gunga Dean, which came out in 1939, which is, of course, Hollywood's greatest year. I didn't make that up. That's what people say. No less than The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Women, Stagecoach, Dark Victory, and many other films came out that year the hollywood studio system was at its height and the dream factory was just pumping out one classic after another and gunga dean is one of them although it hasn't really lasted as long in the cultural memory as some of the other ones quite possibly because it's in black and white and it's got a lot of brown face i guess you'd say and some other things, I don't know. We'll talk about whether it should have lasted, but it's, it's Gunga Dean. If it has a claim to fame these days, it's because a, some guys named Spielberg and Lucas ripped off a lot of its mythology for a little film called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, pretty directly cribbing from the stuff here. This movie's kind of famous as a proto-Indiana Jones, proto-Butch and Sundance, proto-Joss Whedon, proto... We're going to have quippy guys go on adventures and not take them very seriously. This is like the original that. Until they do. Until they do. Until the movie wants us to take it seriously. But well, you actually said, well, we shouldn't get to your take right away. But you said this was a proto something else. 
Which I might not remember what I said. You, you said might. it was a proto. You said it felt like a proto Michael Bay movie or something like that. It, oh yeah, in that, I did. Uh, just in that, in the mm-hmm. sort of, this is all glib and ridiculous in Hollywood. It feels like a proto '80s superhero movie. Yes. to me, where you have guys that, for no explicable reason, except that there are heroes, can just laughingly put down twenty guys at a time until such time as they can't. And there's nothing special about them. They don't look special. It's, if there's anything special about them, it's that they're white. And that's really it. They're just the guys that show up and laugh and drink and tell jokes and beat the crap out of everybody. Right. Yeah, it's very 80s in that it's got that kind of 80s style machismo, that sort of, well, there are heroes. So I guess it's kind of like a Bill Murray movie mm-hmm. almost. Like, he's a terrible person, but we like him because he's Bill Murray, so he can do whatever he wants. This has yeah. a, a very Bill Murray kind of a scene. I mean, it's not anything like as funny as what Bill Murray would do with it. Actually, it's one of the lamest scenes of the entire movie, in my humble opinion, but they basically spike this guy's drink. And we're not mm-hmm. set up to really dislike this character, except he must be dislikable because... Our guys don't like him. Our guys don't like him, and he's standing in the way of their camaraderie or whatever. And so... Yeah, and they take the opportunity of the scene to make him dislikable. Right. <clears throat> but I was surprised by how little work the movie did to actually mm-hmm. give us one 30-second scene where he kicks a beggar or something so that then we can feel good about these guys spiking his drink and humiliating <laughs> him and sending him to the hospital and all this stuff. Like a Bill Murray movie would actually probably give us a little bit more... Let's set this guy up as a real jerk so we can knock him down, but... yeah. Yeah, well, the the Michael Bay of it all to me is the lack of connective tissue. Just going to shift gears into being completely silly, then shift gears into being like, this is epic action, and then shift gears into this is sentimental hogwash, or this is important drama, is what the movie might think, but sentimental hogwash. It will just do that as many times as it wants. Right. And I know Hollywood's been doing that a long time. I think just in a Michael Bay film, you feel it more. In this movie, I felt it more. Well, yeah, this I should say this movie does have a direct lineage because the movie that really in the 70s created the whole glib mindset of wisecracking heroes who don't take anything seriously was Butch and Sundance, which was written by William Goldman. William Goldman saw Gunga Din at a young age and said it was it made the most giant impression on him. (laughs) So there's a direct lineage from this to that to Spielberg and Lucas and 80s and Star (laughs) Wars and all that kind of stuff. Forgive me, Butch and Sundance, I think it's 69, actually. But then less than 10 years later, you have mm-hmm. A New Hope, which is famous for its sort of glib approach to... Although Lucas and Spielberg, I think, really mastered the art of making those things feel pretty homogenized for the most part. I think so. Even Butch and the Sundance Kid, like it or not, it has a pretty consistent texture. Yeah, I think that's true. Across the whole film. I think that's true. It does have, if you remember, the ending is super brutal and kind of nihilistic and yep. it kind of comes out of nowhere after raindrops falling on my head and but it also has some of the best one-liners as yes. they're getting shot to death yeah next time i was going to try and say it but i can't remember it <laughs> well gunga Din, it's a film that we watched uh I, we have dial of destiny coming out this year indiana jones i'm hoping very soon that Maybe even by the time this episode is released, that we will our Patreon will be up to $250 a month, which would be very easy for it to get up. So we'll be talking about Batman. I hope this year we get to talk about the Burton Batmans and the Reeve Supermans and stuff. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and it'll provide a lot of fun context. For right. Just 
exactly. everything that's going on and that people are enjoying or not enjoying today. Right. It's a three-hour-long discussion of Superman 4. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> we have already established we're not doing Forever or And Robin <laughs> or Richard or- Pryor Superman or Sun Guy Superman. <laughs> <laughs> the reason being... They're terrible. They're terrible. They're so terrible. It was, and, and there's not really anything to say. Us. I mean, we're not a bad movie podcast. We like to have fun. We we're like a to good joke movie around. Podcast. But we, we, don't, we don't just watch something so we can dunk on it that we know is going to be terrible. Usually, I'm sure we've probably... You can name something we've done like that. I want to have a point. I'd love to dunk on Shrek for three hours, but there would be like... It, there would be a point There to would be a that. point to doing that. Yeah. Shrek basically ruined culture <laughs> and movies. So... Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I got excited about talking about Gunga Din. A, because I remembered it was a really fun adventure movie. B, because we were all in the mood for something old with Cary Grant. And C, because I thought it would tie in. Yeah, I think, yeah, I remember, I'm just trying to remember the conversation. We were just, we had been hitting up against walls. And I think I was the one who was like, I just wish there was a Cary Grant film that I hadn't seen. And then you got really excited. Yeah. Because you pulled this one. And connected it to everything. And I had, I had, I remember you talking about it before, but I had forgotten that it existed. I had also forgotten that it existed. So when it the light bulb went off in my head, I literally gasped. I literally, <gasps> and you guys are like, what? Did you step on a nail or something? And I, like, yeah, no. I just had a brilliant idea. Which I've never done in my entire life before or since. And did this movie live up to that gasp? Well, <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> that's a question we'll answer. <laughs> I remembered this movie a little more fondly than I think it probably deserved, but I do think it's a fun and interesting movie to talk about. And certainly it does tie into a lot of stuff and I don't know. We'll see, we'll see where we land with our take. Ben, did you bring any baggage or context or anything to this? I remember seeing this movie on my grandfather's shelf and he had a lot of war movies and stuff. I had no interest in war movies as a kid. I just, it all looked very boring to me. Mm-hmm. So I just associated this with, there's a boring old movie. That's there you it. go. That's boring all. old movie on Grandpa's Shelf. That's right. And you don't mean that it was playing on Grandpa's Shelf. You mean that there was it like just a, sat there. a cassette tape it or something. It sat there. He, I never saw any of it. I'd never seen a single scene before. Are you a Kipling head? No. Are you a Kipling hater? I wouldn't say I, I'd even go that far. I'm just Kipling indifferent. So I read Jungle Book when I was a kid. I guess I just liked it more or less. You did like it or you disliked Dis- it? Disliked yeah. it. I read both volumes of it in the cheap paperback editions I had. And that's all I remember, that it was sometimes a little bit enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> but also, generally, I didn't enjoy those stories. I did like, what's his name, Ricky Ticky Tavi? Ricky Ticky Tavi and the Just So stories, I think, are better than Jungle Book. Which I haven't read the Just So stories. I think they're more fun, actually. I think yeah. they're underrated and Jungle Book is overrated. Yeah. Except for Ricky Tiki Tavi, which is probably the best thing he ever did. Yeah. I don't know that Jungle Book actually is overrated because I don't know that I've talked to anyone that actually likes it. I'm sure they exist, but like people love the Disney movie from like the animated I thing. always hated that well, too. But it does gets anyone... a lot of credibility or credit, I think, from Disney. Yeah. It just sort of rubs off on it. People have a positive disposition toward it, whether they know better or not. Oh, unless, it's just, it's unless weird. they've gotten into it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I, I just had a argument with somebody about C.S. Lewis where I dared on Twitter to criticize something about C.S. Lewis, and that always brings out... His take on pederasty, no yeah. less. Yeah, I said, C.S. <laughs> Lewis trying to defend pe- pederasty as having some kind of virtue in it was not a good thing. 
probably the worst thing about him. And that brings out the NPCs and the jackals swarm. And it's just like, you cannot say anything bad about C.S. Lewis. And when you think about it, it's not because he was such a great theologian or thinker or intellectual. Let me be a little condescending to my critics here. The reason that you cannot say anything bad about C.S. Lewis is because he wrote Narnia. And that's the beginning and And that hideous strength. And that hideous strength. But that hideous strength is what conservatives like. The reason I think people have such affection, like like the reason he's just unassailable, you cannot say one bad word about him, is because... Narnia's beloved. Yeah, it, you, it imprints on you when you're seven. And those are the things that you just hold dear in a way that make you weird. Make it's, it's like you're, you're. I'm not. If I attack C.S. Lewis, even his take on pederasty, what someone hears is not. This guy had a weird take on pederasty. What they hear is my childhood, and so I think people just are really pressed. And so the only reason I bring up any of that is because I think Kipling, as you say, gets a lot of credit because people like a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't even know if Kipling would be a name in the conversation anymore if it wasn't for that. Disney, for one thing, he's wildly out of fashion in terms of his politics. Everybody and, hates him. Yeah, everybody, any, everybody who has any kind of critical capacity or the academy, the chattering class, they do not like Kipling. And I don't know if they're wrong. I know there's a certain kind of conservative, certainly there's a certain kind of racist conservative that wants to come back and own Kipling. And I like the poem, If. Everybody likes that yeah. Be a Man, My Son poem. Mm-hmm. It's good. You know, he's got some good kind of love your country, love your family kind of stuff that we wouldn't feel bad owning. And we could have an interesting discussion about the white man's burden, which is another poem. He coined that phrase and wrote a poem called The White Man's Burden. And I think probably all three of us would be sympathetic to the idea that a superior culture actually does need to go in and help and develop a inferior culture and save the inferior culture from savagery. Like we, we, don't, yeah. hate, we don't hate that idea the way that post-colonial theory academics hate that idea we're not on pocahontas's side when we watch pocahontas but that being said kipling we just read that poem none of us would want to own <laughs> the right. the worldview no. of that gunga din poem it's just condescending it's just condescending i don't know jake do you have any other kipling baggage to talk about before kipling we, yeah are we just doing kipling baggage and then doing yeah or, or any other or any? movie baggage i guess yeah <clears throat> I liked the Just So stories when I read them to my kids a long time ago. And that, for people who don't know, is how did the elephant get his trunk? It's yeah, those kinds it's of just stories. stuff like that. And that's how the alligator got his snout. Yeah, it's just fun little stuff like that. I did not like the Jungle Book when I read them to my kid. When I read it to my kids, coming out of Just So stories, right? Except for Ricky Ticky Tabby, this movie I've never seen and hadn't really heard of except from you. So my baggage is like Indiana Jones and Cary Grant, right? So that's really it. There's really nothing else to bring to it. Two great tastes. Did they go great together? We'll find out, folks. My baggage is, I remember reading Ricky Tiki Tavi and loving it. Ricky Tiki Tavi, if you don't know, is the story of a mongoose that battles cobras. And it's just an amazing little short adventure story for boys, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's great. And I don't think I even remembered that it was Kipling. I just read it, knew it from being a little kid. And then when we did the Jungle Book for the Bookening, now well over half a decade ago, it was like, ah, this kind of isn't that great. It's kind of weird. Kipling's worldview is weird. His conception of who the animals are, like this isn't lovable Baloo. It is so hard not to 
right. and process Filter things back through. through the movie. Yeah. And it's hard not to want the movie. Like, where's the bare necessities? And instead, it's these weird poems, self-indulgent poems, and all this kind of law of the jungle. You could tell Darwin was a big deal kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. I don't even know how to describe it. I guess you can go listen to the, That's like the third booking episode that we ever did. So I don't know how proud we'd actually be of it now. But you can certainly go listen to that to hear our take. But I remember finding this movie when I was a teenager and really liking it and liking it as a proto Indiana Jones thing. I think I remembered it as being even more that. I remembered it as having more action and more kind of jungle flavor than it actually does. It basically has one one good action scene and no jungle flood. It's pretty obviously filmed in California. But so we'll talk about whether it actually holds up, but I remembered it holding up. I remembered it being good. I was excited to talk about it. But we've got some context we need to talk about first. Ben, you did a little research on the Tuggies. This movie is heavy on the Tuggy. Yes. Murder cult. Murder cult or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Who I pronounce them thugs because that's a pronunciation I found, but Tuggies or thugs. Yeah, thug, so I think thugs. Thugs, I think you're actually right, although I've certainly heard You've heard Tuggies, thugs. yeah. Yeah. Well, so there were supposedly in India at this time roaming bands of murderers and robbers called thugs or thuggies. And supposedly these guys had a formal inherited culture of robbery and murder, like with its own traditions and rules passed down from father to son. Like you, you're going to strangle a victim more often than not. And maybe you're going to use a cat gut garrote or you're going to use a special scarf a murder scarf as mm-hmm. i believe this movie <laughs> calls it maybe you'd stab or poison but strangling is a is, is better and so the thugs they're going to pose as friendly innocent travelers and they're going to come up beside you as you're traveling and say hey can we travel with you actually like, not unlike the beginning of this that's movie. right this is exact this movie follows exactly kind of the lore of what the thugs were and so they gain your trust and over a period of maybe just a day maybe a whole week they gain your trust and then at a certain moment, the men of the thuggy cult stand behind their victims as they sit unsuspecting around the campfire, and the leader gives a signal. Maybe it's like, pass the salt. And suddenly everyone has their scarf out, and while one thuggy holds down the arms of the innocent traveler, the other one strangles him. And so very quietly, everyone is murdered, and then maybe the bodies are mutilated so that they can't be identified. Maybe they're thrown in a river, they're buried, whatever. And the thuggies loot them. Supposedly, they also did this for a religious purpose. And this is a big deal in the movie. They're, it's an act of worship mm. to the Hindu goddess Kali, who's the goddess of, it turns out, war, anger, time, change, creation, destruction, and power. She's also a manifestation of the goddess Shakti, who's like the goddess to end all goddesses in Hinduism. She's the mother of all living beings. She's personal, I guess, but also like primordial cosmic energy. So there's a lot of Hindu religious stuff feeding into this. But is that all true? Well, that's been really heavily disputed. How much, if any of that is true? So it could just be the British colonists othering these people and that's telling right. scary stories about these people that they'd conquered. People have certainly argued that the British, they hyperbolized. They <laughs> made stuff up out of just what robbers were doing random robbers in India. And I read about this book that I'd love to read sometime. I think it's just called Thuggy. And apparently this guy's conclusion, I don't remember the author's name, is that religious stuff? No, not really. 
There wasn't, except insofar as a lot of these guys were Hindus. And although some of them were Muslims and some of them were like, at least there was Islam around and it was often syncretistic. So you'd often have Muslims who were also worshiping certain Hindu deities and that might have been a thing feeding in. But there was a real thuggy thing, a real thuggy phenomenon in, locate my notes here, yeah, in the 1830s. There is a British officer, and so this is when the East India Trading Company is like taking power and ruling with its own military. This is before the British government takes over India, which is 1857. But there's a British officer named Major General Sir William Henry Sleeman, who's nicknamed William Thuggy Sleeman. And he was like, these guys are a big deal, they're a big threat. And so he systematically interrogates and executes hundreds of thugs, or so-called thugs. And he was doing all this kind of stuff that anticipates modern police work. He's just, he has this organized way of interrogating and following leads and finding out, finding where these gangs are. And uh, he was a really smart guy. Interesting. Administrator, linguist, and... It's important to say he actually, I read somewhere, he let people off the hook. Like he did not just find everyone guilty. <laughs> so... As, yeah. as soon as you hear that, your colonial theory program yeah, brain wants yeah, to say, yeah, well, they yeah, just yeah. rounded up a bunch of India people and scapegoated them. Scapegoated and them and made an example of them right. and told a story that made them feel better about themselves for it. Right. And that was part of the... And maybe there's something to that, but it was definitely more complicated than that. It was more complicated. And you, this stuff is archived. There's all these records of the interrogations and confessions that he did. And so it seems incontrovertible that these guys were real, these thugs. But they were a mixture of things. They weren't like one thing. They were like, oh, we're forming a gang. Let's go kill some people because we're whatever. Okay, there you have that. Then you have standing gangs like we have. You might even have some hereditary murder training, maybe, passed down. That's a little harder to tell. But no evidence of a, a specific religious connection. There was some kind of preference for strangulation. And uh, apparently... This is an interesting detail. Strangulation afforded these murderers, at least at times, some protection under Indian law. Because for Indian law, you would be sentenced to death if you shed the blood of your victim. And technically, strangling doesn't shed any blood. And so you might be able to get off. And so, anyway, you might not be risking execution, just labor, hard labor and a penalty. So, and if you look up the Wikipedia entry on thugs, you'll notice all these different accounts and ideas, even there, of what they are or were, what they did or didn't do. They didn't kill the children of their victims. Well, they did kill women and children to loot them. The thugs always hid their murderous intent. No, the thugs had a special dagger that was like their status symbol, and they wore it proudly across their chest. So you'll find all of that stuff on the same Wikipedia entry. Right. And so maybe all of that's true at different times, or I didn't read the thuggy book, but man, is this a big rabbit hole. So so they were real, whatever they were. <laughs> maybe just highway robbers. Highway robbers plus standing gangs plus, it sounds like it was a big problem. It sounds like it was really dangerous to be a traveler. Yeah, so you should read the book Thug. That's right, it's what it's called. Thug, Thug. by Mike Dash. There you go. Yeah. So it's kind of like ninjas or there's any, I'm trying to think of other parallels, like the things that really existed, but then so much fun to add a dash of folklore to it and say, well, obviously they were all part of a murder conspiracy and they still exist and Indiana Jones is going to find them (laughs) and they're going to be ripping people's hearts out with their demonic power. And yeah, they're just kind of the perfect, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. 
but not just a British colonial invention. Right. But maybe a British colonial exaggeration or... Yeah. Yeah, seems to be. Yeah. And remember, thugs just... It's just basically hugs with an extra letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was their slogan. <laughs> hugs Hug, for thugs. Hugs for thugs. Hugs for thugs. <laughs> well, not a lot of people want to hug Rudyard Kipling these days, and I'll tell you why <laughs> in the next part of our context. Uh, it's important to say he was one of the most popular short story writers and poets of his time. He has fallen completely out of favor. As we were saying earlier, it's just interesting because he's still in the public consciousness. He probably will be forever, and it might really just be Disney. It's kind of like, is Dracula a novel that has staying power, or is Bela Lugosi an image that has staying power? I don't really know. It's a pretty effective novel, but it's also like the image of Dracula is way more effective than the novel of Dracula. And if we had Sherlock Holmes, I think we can say... Even if there had never been movies of Sherlock Holmes, he was so popular and the idea of Sherlock Holmes is so great. I think Sherlock Holmes would just be around in the culture no matter what. But I don't know about Rudyard Kipling. There's probably people listening. He is beloved by certain strain of conservatives, not all of them horrible racist, but just people who kind of like manly war stories. And that poem, If, you'll see that on Twitter every now and again or social media. Somebody will post his poem if, which is, if you've done this, if you've done that, if you've done this, when you can look a man in the eye, when you can do your duty, when you can, then you'll be a man, my I, I son. Forget, my dad actually gave me a framed copy of If when I graduated, graduated high, high school. school. Yep. It's like you get, mm-hmm. yeah, you get a, a copy of If and you get a, oh, the places you'll go. That's you usually know. elementary school. <laughs> no, you get, you get, oh, the places you'll go too. Right. Okay. <laughs> those, yeah. those two things. Some ironic aunt. Right. Thinks it's cute. <laughs> but he was enormously popular. I mean, he's enormously popular enough that there's a whole generation of our dads and then certainly a generation of our grandpas and certainly a generation of our great grandpas who love the guy, knew the guy. And people in the early 20th century would have been able to quote Gunga Din. They would have known what you were talking about if you said, and it's still, we still use the phrase, what's the phrase about Gunga Din? You're a better man than I am, Gunga Din. You, you may not even know what it means, but you probably heard somebody. I don't know that I have. Say that. I've heard people say that. It just, it, you huh. know, like Ben is going to go to the party with all the lame people uh, and Nathan's not going to the lame party because he hates going to lame parties and Nathan mutters under his breath, you're a better man than I am, Gunga did. It's like that kind of uh-huh. okay. dynamic. But certainly our great-grandfathers would have used that phrase more than we would. So Rudyard Kipling, the New Yorker said, quote, Kipling has been variously labeled a colonialist, a jingoist, a racist, an anti-Semite, a misogynist, a right-wing imperialist, warmonger. And though some scholars have argued that his views were more complicated than he has given credit for, to some degree, he really was all those things, unquote. And I think the New Yorker is not wrong in this particular case. He was born in India to a father who was a Methodist minister who was an interesting guy. He went to India and started an art school, and the art school is one of those things that you can find people really today really praising because it was meant to... What's the word? It was meant to praise and promote Indian culture, Indian art, stuff like that. But people will also accuse it of being horribly sort of white supremacist appropriation type stuff because it wasn't really meant to appropriate or to promote Indian culture for the use of the Indians. It was more just, hey, these people have all this great art and why should we destroy it all? Let's just let's make sure that we assimilate what's good about this culture. So again, we could have 
and we could spend the entire podcast talking about the good or the bad or that of that, and we'd probably need a lot more information before we made our judgment. But his father was the principal of Gigi Bahoy School of Art in India. Young Rudyard was born in 1865, and he spoke English, but also spoke whatever the name of the Indian language was, knew both languages, and just thought of India as this paradise with elephants and stuff. It just really connected to India, and then got sent when he was a young man to a boarding school, which he and his sister both referred to as the House of Desolation. So this relates to C.S. Lewis, not that we're talking about C.S. Lewis, we were just talking about him off mic, but Rudyard Kipling's another one of these guys that went through the horrible British boarding school experience. And so he's kind of this guy, he's thought of as quite a British nationalist, but he grew up loving India and then went and had a horrible experience in England. And what Chesterton writes about him in an interesting essay in his book, Heretics, Kipling is one of his go-to heretics. And he says, Kipling's just a man of the world. He's a man of nowhere. He doesn't actually have allegiance to anything. What he has, he has allegiance to things like honor and he has, he likes the military and, but you can even see traces of this in the movie. It's not that he really cares about the British military so much. He just cares about the idea of being part of an organization with discipline and with rules and with honor and with sacrifice. Like he likes those qualities, but the fact that he happens to be British is just a kind of an accident of history. It's kind of like in the movie, the British are just the stuffy people that allow our heroes to have an opportunity mm -hmm. to go on an adventure. And is their culture better than the Indian culture? Well, in some sense, but also the Indian culture is better than them in some sense. And so Kipling was a complicated guy. Anyway, he worked his way through nasty experiences in England and went back to India as a young man, became a journalist, wrote stories, particularly about the military experience, British soldiers, all never from the superior officer's point of view, but all kind of these cockney guys that, like in the movie, you know, the kind of middle officers. And he hit it big. He had this mix of exoticism and sort of British patriotism, as was seen at the time, and common man cockney slang that really appealed to people. He wrote this collection called The Barrack Room Ballads from which Gunga Dean is taken. And it's all these poems that drive me nuts now. Like, I don't, I don't know, maybe there's some of our listeners that actually like them, but they're all, it's kind of like reading Jim and Huckleberry Finn. You just have to work your way through the way that they wrote dialect. Back then, phonetic dialect writing has always driven me nuts. I don't like it in any thing, old thing. And I'm glad that we as a culture have mostly moved away from writing phonetic dialect because it just is annoying to have to translate. But this whole collection is written in sort of cockney phonetic dialect. But then he moved to America. This guy bounced around. And in America, he started writing the Just So stories for his children, two of whom, two of whom died, one of whom died of pneumonia at six. And he really hit it big again, re-hit re it big, got, hit it even bigger with Jungle Book, which was hugely popular at the time, and the Just So stories. But then he had this weird life where even during his time, people were sneering at him, looking down on him, thinking he was a racist, a jingoist. His whole worldview fell out of fashion while he was still alive, and not just among leftists, but, around, but among everyone. Because World War I happened while he was still alive. And World War I pretty much ended the British Empire. And 
just showed people a view of war and of imperialism and of all this. This is like all the kind of romantic notions you could have about that stuff just fell to pieces in World War One, And so people were like, uh, we're not really on board with this whole Kipling thing anymore. I found a really interesting essay by George Orwell written at the time, hmm. who of course was a leftist, but he said of Kipling, Kipling is a jingo imperialist. He's morally insensitive and aesthetically disgusting. During five literary generations, every enlightened per person has despised him. And at the end of that time, nine-tenths of those enlightened persons are forgotten. And Kipling is in some sense still there. That's how the essay starts. And then Orwell's like, what is the deal? Why do people like this guy when everyone also hates this guy? And so his answer in part is from this later quote in the essay, quote, he identified himself with the ruling power and not with the opposition. In a gifted writer, this seems to us strange and even disgusting, but it did have the advantage of giving Kipling a certain grip on reality. The ruling power is always faced with the question in such and such circumstances, what would you do? Whereas the opposition is not obliged to take responsibility or make any real decisions. Moreover, anyone who starts out with a pessimistic reactionary view of life tends to be justified by events, for utopia never arrives. Kipling sold out to the British governing class, not financially, but emotionally this warped his polit political judgment for the British ruling class were not what he imagined and it led him into an abyss of folly and snobbery, but he gained a corresponding advantage from at least having tried to imagine what action and responsibility are like. Which I think is really interesting. Like, Kipling... If he was writing Star Wars, he's the idiot that wrote it from the Empire's point of view, is what Orwell's saying. But the Empire is actually trying to build, however terrible they are, they're trying to build a civilization, whereas all the rebels can do yeah. is react and react. respond. And so that makes him interesting. That makes him interesting. He's like, okay, what, what should civilization look like? What should we be doing with all these planets? <laughs> How should we run a galactic senate? What, what eggs should we break what in eggs? order to make our omelet? Right. And what actually constitutes a hero in our warring class and what constitutes a villain and what constitutes real responsibility and real manhood and all this Kipling. And this is why he's a darling of a certain kind of conservative these days asked and answered these questions. That's part of what's fun about Andor actually. Yeah. Andor is not from the perspective of the galactic empire primarily, but it gives you a little bit of that. And it also gives you the window on these rebels as people are in a corner and have nothing they can do but react. And to what degree are they willing to sell their souls for an idea and compromise their consciences or their principles? Right. And become just as Machiavellian as the Empire in order to attain their goals. It plays with a lot of big ideas like that that you normally don't find Star Wars trying to play with. That's fun. And kind of cool mm -hmm. and kind of it keeps you watching and kind of keeps you there for it, along with some beautiful cinematography. And it's a slower story. I'm not trying to plug Andor. Right. But it is like, in terms of ideas for how to play in Star Wars, it's a case study and somebody actually trying to do something interesting and ask questions that are worth asking. Yeah. I haven't, I still haven't watched Andor, but I was thinking about the difference between the prequels, which even with their sort of reclamation, people still like to dump on the prequels these days. The prequels are actually George Lucas being Kipling. You're like, mm -hmm. okay, what does a Jedi rule class look like? What does the galactic ruling class look like? What are their values? He's answering those questions. Maybe he's doing a corny or bad job of it, but he 
But then you compare that to J.J. Abrams, who's like, I don't even want to tell you what happened really after the Rebels won. I don't, my imagination doesn't go that far. I'm just going to reset everything so that we can still be the embattled kind of Mm -hmm, reactionaries because that's the only thing that I know everybody in my audience will resonate with, which is so boring. I mean, it works in a cynical kind of way. It does give those movies the energy that they need. Okay, we're we're reset. We're back to just being the the good guys on the run, narrowly surviving, which is a good place to have your heroes. But it does dodge a lot of interesting questions. Like, what did the rebellion... I mean, I know you can go into Star Wars lore and figure that out, but... Well, what every stupid decision like that creates a problem that backs the writers and the actual creatives in the smaller spaces into corners that they come up with creative ideas and solutions. Dave Filoni's yeah, lived, like whole... made a, made a career out of living in that space and doing a good job with it. And so, of just sort of the novelists and writers like Timothy Zahn, I've never read any Star Wars book or novel, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that was what was interesting about the Zahn, the original Zahn trilogy. Was okay, we defeated the Empire. Now we got to establish a thing, and here are the kind of remnants of the Empire that are regathering and. There's some forward momentum. We're building on something. We're what are the contingencies? If and part of the problem the the story itself creates is, man, if the imp, if the if Palpatine really was such an evil genius, then what were all of what were the contingencies? Right, because he would have had a thousand of them. Right, he would have had to. He brought down the entire Jedi Order. He consolidated power across the entire galaxy. How did he pull that off? And then get taken down by a man in a robot suit. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the Zahn answer. Right. That, that's, why, that's why the broad, in broad strokes, Abrams' idea actually works. Yeah. Or can be made sense of retroactively, right? Yeah. But it's still, ethically, morally, it's not an interesting, like it's, or just thematically, it's not interesting to just have the sequel trilogy. Be a reboot, yeah. rehash mm-hmm. with well, modern. Yeah. And it's like, even if people are, oh, Ray is just a Skywalker and like, all, oh, we're blowing up another super weapon. There's those kinds of things. But it's also, but I think much more disturbing actually is we're just going to be a spiritual rehash. We're just going to be a thematic rehash. We're not going yeah. to move the idea of who, well, yeah, what it, this universe is forward at it all. It actually freezes every character too. No, actually every character got stuck. You thought that they had a victory and they were going to grow and take more responsibility. But, but there was no growth. There was no growth. There was no victory. In fact, they even went backwards. Yeah, redemption's not real. Right. Just undoes everything that you like when you're done with the original Star Wars. Right, which is what, which is why I thought this essay by Orwell Luke should was, have been whole. Right, yeah. exactly. Well, but yeah. it's hard. Did does Luke get married? Does Timothy Zahn had him get married? Did Mar- Mara Jade all this stuff? It's like Yay. it's actually hard, and you risk. Well, he's gay now, so right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Thanks for that. But you risk being cheesy when you begin to answer these questions, and you risk. It's like Kipling's out of fashion. George Lucas is to some degree still out of fashion, and so it's like once you actually try to imagine what the good version looks like and what the problems of responsibility as Oral world says are it's a lot harder than just saying well there's a monolithic villain and we got to fight the villain so maybe you just don't make star wars sequels i mean that's another option but then how would you make money how would you make money you'd have to find another story you'd have to invent one we're not doing that that's hard that's uh, hard it's called rebel moon <laughs> Zack snyder <laughs> okay well i am looking forward to that <laughs> <laughs> me too uh, 
Anyway, that's a tiny little thing on Kipling. Let's talk about the movie real quick. I don't know how I be how I hate Zack Snyder, but the world has made me a Zack Snyder fan. <laughs> it's not that I like him; it's that everything is so bad. Everything is so bad, and his Justice League was really fun. Yeah, the, I, the, his his Justice League cut was actually legitimately fun, and I don't know in a world where somebody's just willing to make bold choices and plant a flag and ask questions, even if his questions are stupid and his, <laughs> the flag he plants is ridiculous <laughs> and his choices are retarded. Like it buys him respect in a world where Marvel has turned everything gray and gay. Yep. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. He's, Snyder is not good. He's not good. You just watch 300. It's so stupid and terrible and bro and ah, fascist. But he's interesting at least. You just said bro and fascist and now I want to watch it. I've never seen it. It's not good. I've looked at the comic by Frank Miller. Yeah, it's, it's, nah. It's not good. Watch Gladiator again if you want a cheesy Roman epic. So, producer Edward Small options the poem in 1936 and joins RKO and starts to develop this film just based on a poem, because back then that was the kind of IP that actually resonated with people, with Howard Hawks, the famed director of Scarface, Bringing Up Baby, Only Angels Have Wing, His Girl Friday, Ball of Fire, The Big Sleep, Red River, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Rio Bravo, the sort of hard-bitten, fast-talking quintessential director of his time and it's hawks that's like let's not actually make a movie about this indian water carrier that's only going to get us so much he can be a supporting character instead let's make a fun movie about bros with jokes and stuff like that which is very in line with if anybody's ever seen his girl friday or some of those kinds of things they're just witty banter movies and so they stole from a story by kipling called soldiers three which is which? This is actually much more of an adaptation of than it is of of Dean. They made Dean a supporting character. Then Hawks had the misfortune of making for RKO a film called Bringing Up Baby, which is well regarded now, and you guys have probably seen it because I've it's seen it. Habits, actually. You have not. Neither one of you. Seen I've it? seen it. Yeah, I do not like Bringing Up Baby at all. I do not find it to be what, funny. Wait, is that the one with the newspaper reporter? No, that's His Girl Friday. Oh, okay. Bringing Up Baby has like, Cary oh, Grant's a bumbling paleontologist and Catherine I Hepburn is a zany. It. I haven't seen it. Yeah, okay. it's horrible. I don't know why people like it. <laughs> if you want to see Catherine Hepburn at her most annoying and then the movie does not punish her for it at all, but rather just punishes Cary Grant and has him just be a simp along. I don't know. Maybe I'm a horrible sexist or something, but I hate bringing up baby. And so does everyone. Did everyone else? Who wants to see Cary Grant be a simp? Well, yeah, that's the real thing is he's just kind of this bumbling, quiet dude. And it's like, no, I want him to be the creator. We didn't get enough Cary Grant just oozing masculine bravado and sexuality before he aged out. Yeah. We should have gotten more of that. Exactly. And if he's going to be the funny guy, he has to be the funny guy like in Gunga Din. He has to be really funny. He has to be actively funny. He can't be the passive straight man. Cary Grant's not actually made to be a straight man. He's, well, he's got to be Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. Harrison Ford can be the funny man, but he still has to have his verve. Right, exactly. And so in Bringing Up Baby, it's like Catherine Hepburn's knocking things over and letting tigers out of there. And Cary Grant's just like, what? Huh? The whole time. And it's just, 
completely demoralizing and emasculating for, for one of the great actors. I'll let Jimmy Stewart do that. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart can do that kind of thing and just be, and keep his dignity. The thing that Jimmy Stewart would do is he'd be angry about it the whole time. Right. He'd be simmering. He'd be simmering. And that would make you like him. I do not like Cary Grant in that role. I also do not like the entire oeuvre of Gary Cooper because I feel like unless he's in High Noon, he's usually playing a character like that who's just like, huh, what? I'm just bumpkin that's off my game. Even Sergeant York. Yeah, even Sergeant York is kind of like that. (laughs) Lou Gehrig. He's also way too old for every role he ever was famous for. I just don't like Gary Cooper. But one day we'll talk about Sergeant York, I'm sure. Maybe one day we'll talk about Lou Gehrig, whatever that movie's called. Friday the the Yankees. Yeah. So anyway. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I know what it was called. Sometimes I pretend to know less than I do. Does it have baseball in it? It's a defense mechanism. (laughs) Guess who's seen it? Yeah. Just seen it. (laughs) This guy. So, who has two thumbs and seen Pride of the Yankees? <laughs> it's really, uh, shut up. I, I hate your guts. <laughs> okay, so Howard Hawks made Bringing Up Baby. It was a colossal financial failure. Catherine Hepburn played her greatest role as box office poison and retreated to Broadway where she would lick her wounds and develop Philadelphia story as a comeback vehicle, a very successful one. But meanwhile, Hawks is now not in vogue. So he's kicked off of Gunga Dean after developing it. And so they bring in George Stevens. We've talked about George Stevens once before. Do you guys remember the film that we have watched that we really like a lot that George Stevens did for RKO from the same era? Would have done it maybe a year or two before this. Sorry, I said again. <laughs> the film that George Stevens did that we have talked about on this podcast at great length that we really like that he would have done in the mid-30s. That he would have done in the mid-30s. Probably one of the only mid-30s movies we've actually done. Oh, goodness. It went out of my brain. Can you name a star or two stars of this movie? Jimmy Stewart. Nope. <laughs> it's a famous male-female male, duo. That ought to do it. Happened one night. Nope. Nope. That's, that's way that's, earlier, That's right? Capra. Yeah. That's Capra. And it's Capra. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. that I can think oh, of is good Capra. Grief. Oh, Astaire and Rogers. Yeah, Swing Time. Oh, yeah. Swing Time. George Stevens was a famous comedy director. He came up with the Hal Roach Studios, who did Our Gang, Laurel and Hardy, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Have any of you guys ever watched Laurel and Hardy? They're kind of uh, not yeah, really not really. I've watched a couple. Did you like them? No, I yeah. watched them as a kid. They're kind of slow, right? Like slow. They weren't very funny. As as a kid, I could still like Marx Brothers, but not them. Marx Brothers are fast and zany. Three Stooges are fast and zany. Laurel and Hardy are like. I'm going to slowly set up this thing. I'm going to bumble into the slow thing that you've set up. It's going to happen to me slowly. I'm going to react with a funny face slowly and subtly. (laughs) (laughs) A lot lot of like adults would say it's their favorite sort of, you know, it's got subtlety. It's like I went to a restaurant one time and we ate boring bland toast, but it was an expensive restaurant. And one of my, another person who was there was like, it has a subtle flavor. I was like, yeah, it sucks. I, I like actual flavor not subtle flavor uh, that's well, I like how you said a lot of adults like, <laughs> like <laughs> you <Laura> know <laughs> people who suck <laughs> you know a lot of adults <laughs> serious boring stupid people so he made alice adams which was a big movie he made swing time he made the more the merrier and a gunga din he was basically a sparkling comedy director but then he <laughs> went to war and he's one of the guys that came back the most changed from World War II. So he made a bunch. He's actually most famous for the serious kind of social issues movies that he made after. So he made A Place in the Sun and Shane 
and which is a great western and giant with what's his face you're tearing me apart diary of Anne frank he made like all these like he never made it's just kind of an interesting thing he went to war and then never could bring himself to make a comedy like the world was just not funny to him and this is the guy that made swing time the most light souffle of a perfect little movie so anyway he ended up on gunga dean and brought in some Hal Roach writers to punch it up and make it funny. William Faulkner supposedly may have also worked on this movie just because this was in Faulkner's drunk huh. Hollywood, I hate myself and need money, period. Memorably immortalized in the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. They've got kind of a Faulkner mm-hmm. analog character in that who's drunk and like his secretary is actually writing the scripts. But you'll see Faulkner's name on things from the time. And then they end up with Victor McLaughlin, Cary Grant, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I'm sure we've talked about these. We've talked about all. Well, no, we haven't talked about Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Because why would we? Because this is about the only thing he's remembered for at this point. But we've talked about old Archibald Leach before, born in Bristol, England. He joined a British vaudeville troupe doing knockabout comedy flips and pies in the face kind of stuff when he was 16. He went with this troupe and toured the U.S. and ended up staying on in New York, became big in vaudeville, and then was taken to into the Hollywood fold in the 30s and renamed as Cary Grant and had to completely invent himself. And like so many people we've talked about, I think, what's her name? What's James Bond's beloved girl that dies? Eva Green's character in Casino Royale. Vesper? Yeah, Vesper. She says, you wear your suit with such disdain or something like that. I think that Cary Grant brings a little bit of that energy, a little bit of the Sean Connery energy and the original Mm -hmm. James Bond that, that just kind of like... Here's a guy that actually wasn't born in a suit, and he's become the embodiment of suave, cool sophistication. But part of the reason he's able to do that is actually because he's sort of ironically commenting on it, standing outside of it. He's bringing a little bit of an edge and a swagger to it that he wouldn't bring otherwise. And so it's like even something like North by Northwest, where you have a relatively funny and sedate Cary Grant, there's just an edge or something there that Makes it more interesting than a guy who feels like he was actually born with a silver spoon hmm. in, her, in his mouth. So the legend about this movie is that Cary Grant knew he would be best in the comedic role, but they offered him the Douglas Fairbanks part, the guy that's in love with the girl, the most boring part of the three. And Cary Grant, the legend at least, is that he, he knew the funny part would be good for him and won it in a coin toss from Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Too bad for Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He probably would have popped more in the Cary Grant part. Anybody would have. It's just a better part. But it also may be true that Cary Grant took the role he wanted and then lobbied for Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to even be in the movie. So either he was Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s biggest supporter or the guy that screwed Mm -hmm. him out of his entire career. We don't really know. Probably the bad one. But that's just my read of human nature. I don't know anything (laughs) one way or another. McLaughlin, we just talked about because he played the bad guy in The Quiet Man. He's her brother. And if you listen to that episode, you know he was a guy that ran away from home to join in the second Boer War, of all things. But they got kicked out when they realized he was a 14-year-old and then went around as a heavyweight boxer and a wrestler and a circus attraction just because he was a big, burly guy that could get work doing that kind of stuff. And then got swept up into the Hollywood machine, as so many people did, and became John Ford's, part of John Ford's kind of 
company of actors was in The Quiet Man and won an Oscar for The Informer with John Ford. And he's just a dude. He's a very lovable presence on screen, even in The Quiet Man, playing the ostensibly villainous part. He's got a good sort of a line on vulnerable, tough guys that get hit on the head with flower pots and make goofy faces and that kind of stuff. Douglas Philip Fairbanks Jr. is the very definition of that wonderful new phrase, a Nepo baby. He was a Nepo baby. He's the son of Douglas Fairbanks Sr., who was a giant star of the silent era, famous for things like The Mark of Zorro and Thief of Baghdad and Robin Hood. You may have seen clips of Douglas Fairbanks sword fighting. And then he's like the original guy who the, the, the bridge is going up over the moat and he grabs onto it and gets lifted up. And like he created all that stuff that... Errol Morris, or Errol Morris, <laughs> Flynn. <laughs> Errol Flynn would do, and then Indiana Jones would steal. And so that's Fairbanks Sr. And the talkies, as they did so many times, the singing in the rain story, the talkies killed Sr. Nobody wanted to hear him talk. But they also gave his son a career because just basically on his dad's name, he got a contract with Paramount when he was 13 years old for $1,000 a week. But he didn't quite Nepo baby it because that didn't produce a hit. And so he kind of got removed and had to go work as a cameraman's assistant and kind of work his way up and he did hundreds of movies dozens of movies he did a lot of movies but Gunga Dean is really the one that he's rem- remembered for he basically just a he could play a good kind of straight arrow hero type with a square jaw but he didn't, he didn't bring that extra spark that like a Cary Grant or somebody brings to it he was he's good in this movie though we also have uh, Sam Jaffe, I think that's how you say his name, Yiddish theater guy in his 40s, who's playing the little Indian guy that probably should be in his 20s or something like that. But he was always cast as these ethnic parts. He did a lot of brown face, black face type stuff. He played a, I guess you'd say Chinese kind of guru, a wise holy man in Frank Capra's Lost Horizon. And other things like that. He just, he always shows up as a character actor and they're always asking him to do ridiculous things. Gunga Dean's definitely his most famous thing. Then we have the Italian Eduardo Chianelli, who plays the evil, what do you call him? I forget. I don't remember. We should say we were prepared to talk about this movie the day that Ben had his twins. So... Ben gave birth. Yes, Ben gave birth. We were all shocked. We thought his wife was going <laughs> to do no it. No one more than me. <laughs> no one, yeah. hey, ben hadn't even put on any weight. But Ben had some twins. And so we were prepared to talk about this movie many weeks ago. Like yeah, I stayed up late the night before the day we were supposed to record it, watching it. Right. And the next day, oh, the babies are coming. Yeah, I think Jake literally. And I it was like three and a half weeks ago or something. Yeah, I want to yeah, say, I want to say Jake texted me like, huh, that movie, here's some thoughts. And then the next text was like, we're headed to the hospital from Ben. It was, <laughs> so it was like, oh, well, I guess we're not going to talk about that movie anytime soon. But we should talk very briefly about Joan Fontaine. She was 19 years old. She is actually Joan de Bovier de Havilland. She is Olivia Havilland's sister, Olivia Havilland being Errol Flynn's leading lady in Robin Hood, stuff like that. She also plays Melanie in Gone with the Wind. There's, it's just kind of interesting because you had these two sisters who both hit it big. People didn't know that they were sisters because Joan had changed her name and they hated each other and fought to see who would get the Oscar first and who would, they were like up for the same roles and kind of stuff like that. Olivia de Havilland kind of won just because A, she was in Gone with the Wind, so she'll be remembered forever. B, she was in the 
Errol Flynn movies. She'll, she'll be remembered forever. And she's great as Errol Flynn's leading lady. They have a lot of chemistry together and things like Robin Hood or the Captain Blood or things like that. But Joan Fontaine had a nice career too. She was in Alfred Hitchcock's adaptation of Rebecca. She plays that simpering character and that thing. She was in Ivanhoe. She was in Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. Those are probably the things that you might know her for. All those parts much better than the part that she gets to play uh-huh. in this film. I don't think you'll accuse me of being a feminist if I say this film does not do Joan Fontaine's character any favors. So they filmed this movie in Lone Pine, California, the foothills of the Sierras, where so many great westerns were filmed. Stevens immediately went way over budget and actually did just about as much damage to the studio's pocketbook as Howard, they were afraid Howard Hawks was going to do. Basically, he spent weeks and weeks on that opening action scene, which you can tell that opening action scene is great. I wish he'd mm-hmm. been able to spend weeks and weeks on other action scenes. Yeah. But the other claim to fame about this movie, everybody thinks that Gone with the Wind was the first one to cross the damn finish line. The first movie to say damn is Gone with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, he doesn't give a damn. But this movie actually has a dam and it came out before gone with the wind so what you would do is you would just pay the fine to the catholic censor board would censor you and fine you and then you'd say we're just gonna pay it which gone with the wind made a big deal out of that there's the famous line from the book and we're keeping they they just made publicity hay with it at the time like we are standing up for our rights we are gonna have what's rhett butler supposed to say like frankly my dear i don't care no he's gonna say the line the line that everybody remembers from the book and so gone with the wind became famous for standing up to the man and including the line but actually this movie had just kind of done it as a throwaway before that happened but this was the second highest grossing film of the greatest year in hollywood history after gone with the wind so people really loved this movie really hasn't lasted in the public imagination but some movies ride an elephant across the bridge of time and comes, comes <laughs> some movies to... <laughs> try to do that and the bridge uh, it falls <laughs> sometimes sometimes the rope bridge breaks and the elephant <laughs> plunges into the gorge of time oh i don't know what did you i guess general thoughts reporting for duty ben what did you think <laughs> about this film oh the that it was michael bayish like we were talking about near the beginning of this podcast and that it had its fun moments and some stuff that's kind of interesting, maybe more from like, a, oh, I've seen the movies that came out of this movie. Or from an academic standpoint than an actual grabbing you, grabbing your heart. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was often, I dare say I was often bored. Yeah. I wish this movie held up a little bit better. I was super excited to share this movie with you guys and share this movie with our fans, but it didn't turn out to be quite the slam dunk that my brain had turned it into. But I still think I liked it a decent amount better than you did. And let's see how Jake felt about it. Jake? <laughs> I don't remember how I felt. About <laughs> yeah, I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who had the twins. I still remember how I felt. I feel like I had a take of some kind, and I don't remember what it was. I don't resent. Looking back, I'll say I don't resent having watched it. I'm glad to have seen it. I have no desire or need to ever see it again. Do you think our listeners should see it? It's a fine, silly, funny night at the movies. And Ben, you would really burning our case up front here, but you'd say no listeners. It's fine. I wouldn't say anyone should go out of their way to see it. That's what I'd say. It has some really fun sequences. It has a fun bad guy. 
the what's his name Cianelli yeah, Eduardo, <laughs> the Eduardo Italian too. playing an evil Indian cult leader yeah that guy's really fun yeah you definitely see the DNA of Temple of Doom in this movie oh yeah that like, the, like that guy is definitely who we're aspiring to recreate right well and, and he and, they, they sneak into a temple and there's a big scary demon lady god and a bunch of cultists with torches and yeah let's just amp that up to a thousand yeah spielberg definitely yeah took that and ran with it pumped some adrenaline into it yeah. but i loved how how it ended oh, where yeah. it just kept going on, <laughs> and, on <laughs> and on oh man trying to get every bit of emotion possible this, out of gunga dean that was amazing it was hilarious and they gave us what old lang syne was yeah, they it? played it. They play all. So the way this movie ends. So if people don't know, the most spoilers. The most famous image from this movie, and something that has has made some of something of a cultural impact, is the Calvary's riding into a trap, and all of our heroes are incapacitated. Whatever shall they do? And then this lowly Indian water boy who's just dreamed of being a soldier. He, the whole movie, and he's already been stabbed through the permutations of the plot. Like he's got one foot in a grave and the other foot in a banana peel. I I tells you, but he grabs the bugle and struggles up onto the spire, the spire of this, of this temple, and manages to blow the the bugle just in time. You know, like the bad guys are cocking their rifles. Oh, on. you know, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and then and then he gets heroically gunned down as the british are like what (laughs) (laughs) a bugle call (laughs) a bugle call this must be an ambush (laughs) let's decimate the brown people (laughs) (laughs) and then they do (laughs) but yeah what i remembered just now actually is i watched this movie in pieces like mostly on my ipad just Mm -hmm. sneaking it in and so all of the setups that were so obviously setups for the payoff I just didn't connect those <laughs> right. dots until it happened. And then I was, when I saw it come together, I just like, I remember laughing out loud through all the emotional scenes. Right. That, like, Cause there's a lot of stuff where it's like, say Din, this is my bugle. It's a bugle that I have. Doesn't come in handy for anything at all. <laughs> you can have it for no reason. Yeah. I will learn to play the warning march right. on the bugle and I will practice it in a humorous way yeah. and then you will yell at me for it. Right. I want to be a soldier. And oh. Can I be a soldier? No, you can't be a soldier because you're an idiot brown person. Right. But I really want to be a soldier. <laughs> and all these like really hammy setups for how oh, it was all going to like if oh, you watch man. it in one sitting and you're like the least bit checked in mm-hmm. y- you know how this movie ends five minutes into it right. but for whatever reason watching it in pieces maybe not caring i was really amused when all the pieces came together because i hadn't like it just hadn't tracked any right. of it and it was just really amusing to see the big bow they put on it mm-hmm. and then they just kept Making the bow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They play old Lang Syne and they're gonna Well and then they have a superimposed image of Dean, the now <laughs> yeah, deceased yes, Dean right. in like a colonial soldier's garb saluting the audience. Right, with the flag. Uh, yeah, with the British flag as we have Ghost Gunga Dean. Yeah, it's just as old Lang Syne plays and the old man reads his tribute. <laughs> it is fun in an academic sense to say, okay, George Lucas, what a genius. Like we can take all these cliches, we can repurpose them, we can set them on another planet, and we can add just a touch of irony, a touch more of irony even than they have here, and we can make people actually, we can make a generation of kids actually connect to all this stuff, all these kind of soldier cliches Mm -hmm. and stuff in a way that 
they wouldn't if they just went back and watched this movie. So it, it might is, have still even got some emotion out of me, despite laughing through it. Yeah, that's what yeah. your text said. Your it, text it was did. like, yeah, it got me. I shed a tear or two. Which, how can you not, old Gungadini saves the Calvary. Which, by the way, if anyone does watch this movie, I highly encourage them not to watch the whole movie, but just to watch the very beginning of a... Uh, what's that guy's name? It's an easy name. Peter I can't Sellers. Pull it. Peter Sellers, yes, of Peter Sellers' The Party, which begins with a hilarious spoof of the famous Gunga Dean. <laughs> it was really funny. You showed scene. it to me. I've laughed over it, thinking about it since it's then. It's funny. I will show it to Jake as soon as this thing is over. I'm but looking I, forward I, to getting this done with so I can see it. I will not ruin it, though, for Jake or for anyone who's not seen it. Gee, what else can we say about this movie? It does have a really great action scene in the first third, kind of the we're getting things off and running scene is our heroes go to investigate a distress call basically from mm-hmm. this village that's been taken over by the tugs and the thugs i suppose i should say and then they walk into this deserted village and you begin to see little signs of guys crouching behind doorways and stuff and then all hell breaks loose as they say and our heroes are People are throwing dynamite at them and they're throwing it right back and people are emptying thousands of rounds and bullets and stuff at them and they're not getting hurt, but they're picking off the bad guys like flies and jumping over rooftops. And it actually, it's fun to see that this cliche goes back as long. It's got the, our backs are up against the wall and we've got to do a perilous jump into a waterfall or something like a oh yeah there's there's a yeah, cliff yeah. and there's some water and it's giant it's actually pretty big yeah yeah no all that was really fun you could see that he spent a lot of time on it yeah that stuff was really fun but then and the ending of the movie is fun like once Cary Grant I guess we should just say yeah, people can probably piece it together but you want to just say what the what this movie was about or what the plot for anyone who's wondering at this juncture in the podcast the plot. Yeah, like there's a thuggy cult and they go find it. They go find the temple where this cult is located and Nonsense. The Tuggies have been decimated. They, they actually, don't exist anymore. They talk about that Sleeman guy. They yeah. actually named they're, they're like since Sleeman did his thing. Right. They've this been is, routed. This they're still around. We got three guys and they're scheming for finding treasure while they're in their on their stupid yep. India jaunt waiting to go home and one of them's engaged to be married and can't wait to get out and always looking for the next thing and the tuggies show up and well they're just the guys to go take down the tuggy cult mm-hmm. and it's hilarious and they just do yep <laughs> so the first third of this movie is pretty good you're getting distressed calls and the tuggies are like emerging from the it's gonna wipe out a whole city and right and then we'll show up and the city will be deserted and we got some nice ambience yep. and some nice heroism and stuff and then the ending of this movie is good Cary grant thinks he's going on a sort of fortune hunting expedition but he ends up in the <laughs> temple of kali surrounded by cultists and then his friends come to rescue him and then the calvary's not far behind and that's all good but where the, the reason why we're all sort of not in on this movie, I dare say, is you've got this middle section, which is just lame comedy, comedy. that does not really, does not really cross the bridge of time. It, it does not cross <laughs> the bridge of time. It does not cross the bridge of, let's make this plot make any sense. It's just like soldiers being silly and doing things 
Well, there's a the scene that's got to be things. 10 minutes where Douglas Fairbanks has decided he's going to get married. And so they have his replacement and Cary Grant. They got to ditch the replacement and get him to sign back on. Right. And, and then they're going to be angry at each other for some reason. And you lock Cary Grant in the brig. And Yeah, I mean, it's got some nice proto broken camaraderie, the kind of stuff that. I don't know, like Lethal Weapon did so well later on that kind of our guys are joshing each other and they kind of all have love-hate relationships with each other and playing jokes on each other. It's got, it does that kind of thing. I guess Butch and Sundance would be the big analog. But yeah, so it really is just a comedy about those guys for the middle half. And and it's amazing how little time we spend building up Gunga Dean or making him any kind of character Mm -hmm. whatsoever. There are two things I didn't really remember. I didn't remember. Oh, well, there's three things. A, I didn't remember the middle chunk being so thoroughly comedy. And frankly, after a decade or more of not seeing it, why would I? There's nothing all that memorable about it. B, I didn't remember how nothing these characters were. Like Victor mm-hmm. McLaughlin's character trait is he loves his elephant. I think that's, I just told you everything we know about him. Really? It's true. Cary Grant's char- character trait is he wants gold. Douglas Fairbanks' character trait is, I'm leaving the, my bros behind to get married. Because I'm an idiot, and eventually I'll come around. Right. And when I do, I'll plant a wet one on our lips and say, gotta jo- join the boys, honey. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, his speech is something like, the problem with you is you don't want a man. You want a... You want a college. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It's, it's, a, it's actually the best scene in the movie, in my opinion. The, that the, moment where he's just like, wait a minute. You don't want a man. Yeah. You, you want a coward who would leave his boys behind. And so that's not me, and it's not going to be, and I don't care what you think. And I'm not, <laughs> but but what he does but is- But it was so plug and play. It was just amazing. It's just like- I don't mind the moment. I think it's a great moment. Uh, I just think- I loved it. I just think if you have Marino Hera- it's such a, a it's such an artifact. Yes, it is. It's, uh-huh. it's nice and refreshing to see that. I just think if the girl had been given any kind of- character to play or dignity or anything before that you could really have a great moment but instead she is just she's basically the antagonist i mean even more than the indian guy she's like the bad guy she's she's like ronald i want you to join my tea company and you won't be playing with your friends anymore and uh, right then she's they don't give her anything to do besides be the annoying female but she gets put in her place he gives her that speech and then he gives her a big kiss like grabs her and ducks her and kisses her and and then jumps on his horse and rides away leaving her breathless so good for douglas fairbanks jr but there's a lot of elephant comedy i dare say more elephant comedy than the average film goer of today wants how many people had seen an elephant in 1937 yeah exactly Exactly. I mean, you couldn't just pull one up on the internet. Maybe you could find a picture book at your local library. You had an elephant. It was tamed. You could do tricks with it. It was cool. Why not make some hay with that? You're going to get the elephant. You're going to pay for the elephant. You're going to pay the trainers and the circus people. Right. Yeah. People come back to see more elephant, maybe. Yeah. The elephant stuff, I dare say, played really well back then. It doesn't matter now. You're just, I mean, like a five-year-old might like it. Like, hey, it's an elephant. But- they're, they're, you are putting up with a lot of elephant stuff in this movie. And that's mm-hmm. do, dopey scene where they drug the guy's drink in order to incapacitate him so that Douglas Fairbank Jr. will have to join them on their next adventure. Goes on and on and on and on. And it's a lot of... Not very funny comedy. Yeah. 
I don't even like that kind of stuff when a Bill Murray does it. I don't usually like. There's this whole like thing of bro humor. I think the most successful version of it ever is the beginning of Ghostbusters when Bill Murray is making eyes with the cute girl and zapping the guy and just being a jerk. That's pretty funny because Bill Murray's so outrageously cynical and mean that you have to laugh. But usually when it's like that, that kind of whole strain of frat boy humor where like, I, I just don't like pranks in real life. I don't like them being played on me. I don't really like being part of them. Ha ha, we tricked you. <laughs> <laughs> now your life sucks. <laughs> yeah, now your life sucks. Ha ha, we put you in the hospital. <laughs> I know, again, there's a whole strain of our listeners who listen to us because they like Christian masculinity and stuff like that, and they probably think what our culture needs is more pranks. But I'm sorry, I'm just an effeminate kind of person, I guess, who does not like being in an outhouse and having someone tip it over so that they can... And then I have to act like, I w- I'm amused by this in order to be accepted into their stupid peer group. Like, no, I don't want to be part of your stupid peer group if you're going to tip over the outhouse while I'm in it. It's not funny. <laughs> no one's ever tipped over an outhouse on me. I don't know. <laughs> That's don't a great know. characterization. of. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about this before on some podcasts, but I don't know. I had a friend who was, we'd be in the basement and he'd be like, your mom is calling you. And then I'd run up and to the kitchen upstairs and it would turn out get this fellas my mom wasn't calling me i was an idiot for trusting my friend for believing basic statements that he made and that sort of whole strain of like haha i belittled you not based on any real flaw in you besides but i just found some way to make you look small and weak and now you need to accept it in order to be part of things not a fan so, Gunga Din, the worst movie ever. What else is there to talk about? Is there anything else to talk about? Oh, it does have one of my favorite, quote-unquote, cliches at the end where there's a journalist that is going along with them. Turns out it's Reggie Kipling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, oh. I love movies where... It's like, and that's the story of how my boat was destroyed by Moby Dick. Now, what did you say your name was again? My name is Herman. Herman Melville. (laughs) (laughs) And in the the filmmaker's mind, the audience is supposed to be like, what? (laughs) The movie's always patting itself on the back. Oh, dear. Well, we solved those murders, those murders in the Rue Morgue. Now, what did you say your name was again? (laughs) Well, my name's Edgar Poe. Edgar Poe? That's a silly name. Maybe you should add your middle name. What is it? It's Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, that sounds better. <laughs> and, and the whole stupid fat audience is supposed to be like shoving popcorn in their mouth and be like, what? Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> the disconnect between what the movie expects of me and what actually happens in those moments. Like, has anyone ever been surprised by that? I'm trying to think of a real movie where that happens. Stupid example, but Shanghai Noon. Or Shanghai Nights. You remember that awesome movie? Oh, how could I forget it? Jackie Chan and yep. Owen Wilson in, no. in England. Yes. And there's like a little urchin boy who's helping him out and doing like flips and Jackie Chan Bruce stuff. Lee? No, it's, he's a little white boy. So And it's the turn of the century, 20th century. I forgot so. this completely. So they're like, so at the very end, they're like, say kid, what's your name? And he's like, my name's Charlie. Charlie Chaplin. 
and <laughs> my eyes got permanent damage. They rolled back into my head, and I've never been able to <laughs> get them to dislodge. And <laughs> I forgot that 100%. That's a terrible movie. But I just remember, like, you know, mm. I could be a snob. We all know I could be a snob. But am I really being a snob when I'm sitting next to – I'm in a crowded theater, and we've all been enjoying this Jackie Chan movie, and there's actually some a person that goes <gasps> – they didn't get the real Charlie Chaplin. It's it's just some kid that they wrote into the script that they said it, it, nothing happened. <laughs> the real Charlie Chaplin wasn't influenced by the real Jackie Chan. You didn't just learn something interesting. <laughs> what is wrong with people? What there actually are people that are like <gasps> it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but this movie like it breaks both its arms patting itself on the back <laughs> with like say sir why don't you say the poem what was that poem you wrote again mr kipling and then he does like the whole gunga din poem and it's just very silly uh, <sighs> it's very silly uh, so <clears throat> And then we have this, not the silhouette, but we have the transparent image of Gunga Dean right. saluting in uniform as though from heaven yep. as, as the movie fades. <laughs> the movie fades. To old Lang Syne. To old Lang Syne. To old Lang Syne. Yeah. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so how many strangle scarfs out of 40 do you give? Mm. I guess one, one other thing we should say. If you want to see Cary Grant really in a very broadly comedic role, this is that. He, Which I, I never do. And maybe you don't want to see that. <laughs> I yeah. never do. And the other thing that's weird is he's, it feels like he really does not want to reveal his Cockney roots, right? It's because he's, he's, he was a Cockney kid. Right. And he's projecting that he's putting on a Cockney accent. Right, he's almost places. doing a Dick Van Dyke or something. Yeah, like where he's moving out of it and then throwing it on in a hammy way here and there in places. And it's like he wants you to think that this is not who I am, this is who I'm pretending to be. And he won't just do the character. And it just feels weird. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if you guys felt that. But it was just like, dude, just just play the character like you've got the tools to play the character play mm -hmm. the character it's fine yeah. it'll be fine nobody's gonna look down on you for playing the character huh. yeah that you're supposed to be playing just because you're afraid it's revealing too much about yourself or something yeah 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 yeah, yeah. maybe that accounts for why i didn't like it it was like there was this weird sideways aspect to his performance that just insecure it actually make sense. is what it feels like in a way that does, mm. isn't becoming to carry grant yeah he also does a lot of really broad mugging, like he'll see something surprising and his eyes will pop out of his head. And like it's, which Cary Grant can be guilty of that in lots of roles, but usually it's more well integrated and feels more like, but it, yeah, I mean, if you like to see, if you want to see Cary Grant do a very broad Cockney stereotype that seems to not draw on anything from his actual past or personality, then I don't know. It is interesting. And it, not play very well with his persona. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can understand him wanting to play this character instead of. I mean, it's it's not like any of the characters. I don't know which one you'd which one I'd want to play. Maybe Victor McLaughlin, but I think that might just be because Victor McLaughlin is naturally likable enough that he makes his character seem naturally likable. I don't know that that character is actually all that likable in the script. Douglas Fairbanks has to be. What's the nice way of saying? 
beholden to the lady the whole movie. Until such time as he's going to put her in her place. He's going to put her in her place. And then he does a credible sort of faux Errol Flynn kind of, all right, boys, sort of mm-hmm. British thing. But uh, I did th- think I could hear, I'm just looking through my notes to see if there's anything else that I wanted to talk about. I did think I could hear William Goldman in this movie. If you think about The Princess Bride and the way that they talk and the, the rhythms of the dialogue, and then you think about lines like I think Victor McLaughlin or somebody says, you displease me greatly and I ignore the both of you. Actually, that's mm-hmm. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. The two of them are arguing in prison and we cut over to him and he's wounded or whipped or something. Well, it's like Wesley is based on... Very much. Douglas yeah. Fairbanks yeah. Jr. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a great connection. I actually hadn't made that connection. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird. I'd actually had that thought beforehand that, but, and, and, that, and I had thought that Andre the Giant and Victor McLaughlin... Yeah. They have a lot in common in terms of Andre the Giant. Just the, I don't know. I had connected it to the Princess Bride, huh. except that, that I had both of those thoughts independently yeah. at, at various points, but never really thought it was worth saying out loud. No, I think it is worth saying out loud because it's Goldman. And I think this movie has that sort of, we're playing silly characters, but the dialogue is just a little bit more literate than it would actually be. And just rephrasing things in a way that a Yiddish comedian or something would, mm-hmm. you know. Like who says you displease me greatly and I ignore the both of you. Well, the Princess Bride characters are saying things like that mm-hmm. constantly. And that's kind of William Goldman's whole deal. So, and Butch and Sundance are the same way. So, all right, Ben, how many strangling scarfs out of 30 do you give? I know it was 40 earlier. Oh, I was going to say out of 30. Oh man. Uh, let's say 17. 17. Sure. So almost a F if we're just going with percentages. It might be too mean. But 17, I don't know. I'm not thinking in percentages. Okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking in, sc- in scarves. Scarves. You're just thinking in scrangling scarves. Yeah. <laughs> like you always yeah. do. <laughs> I might or might not have been taught some murder strangling by my dad. <laughs> that our listeners might not know about. <laughs> probably not I, i'd love to yes and that but i don't know how to yes and that i'm sitting here thinking like, I, I like to yes and things but how do i yes and that? jake how many strangle scarves 22 22 all right uh yeah i think 22 strangle scarves about right i really was excited to talk about this movie and i wish it was a 30 strangle scarf scarfer <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's just not it's not a movie that has traveled across time all that well. I'll up my rating to 20. How's okay. that? That I'll sounds about 20. right. Who should, maybe a more productive mm-hmm. discussion, who should watch this movie and who should not watch this movie? Spielberg and Lucas fans. Who are interested in their... In the roots. Yeah. We are not giving you another Steven Spielberg movie. I wish we were. No, would. this is just sort of an ad fontis to the sources. Yeah. If you want to see, you know, the stuff behind the stuff that you love and where it comes from, and be impressed by what they accomplished, and, yeah. Yeah, I think... I mean, there's a lot, like, even the elephant humor made it into... Temple of uh, Doom. Temple of Doom. Yeah, Temple of Doom owes a lot to this movie. I mean, Temple of Doom, they're Mm. basically just like, let's make the R-rated version of Young Adin. Like, all the things, all the things that triggered our imagination, let's take those things and turn them up to 11. And yeah, I think if you're the kind of person that just likes old movies, if you just like watching Cary Grant, if you're, if you like to watch TCM or something like that, you'll enjoy this movie, but it's not, it's not going to 
proselytize you if you're not if, if this does not sound like the kind of movie that you'd like then you will not like this movie probably you might be a little bored mm-hmm. honestly although i do think that that action scene is one of the better action scenes of its time yeah this I, is one of sure you reminded me too this is the first movie that i've ever watched on accelerated speed mm-hmm. not all of it but the middle section i figured out because i was watching it on my ipad which i rarely do figured out that I could toggle the speed and I watched sections of that middle half that were just boring. Yeah. One and a half or 1.75 hmm. or 1.25. Usually an unforgivable sin when it comes to. Action. I don't believe in that at yeah. all when it comes to movies, but I was pressed for time and it was dragging on. Yeah. I mean, all you missed was like long scenery shots and people walking and, and just the lamest kind of comedy quote unquote. So, Sorry. Better luck next time, Gunga Din. All right. Well, folks, I encourage you to watch the Peter Sellers clip from the party, which we're going to do now. But speaking of parties, it's a party every day with our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness winner, Jeffrey. What is it that makes Jeffrey such a man among men? (laughs) Every day, in a manner of speaking, Jeffrey (laughs) pulls his his wounded body atop the spire of progress. And blows the bugle of brotherhood. I was just thinking about the other day about Jeffrey. He likes to climb the <laughs> spire of progress and blow the bugle of brotherhood. Yeah, even if he gets killed for it, he'll still do it. Even if he gets killed. And I think that's dumb. Like, let's not be killed <laughs> for blowing the bugle of brotherhood on the spire of progress. Like, much better things to die for, Jeffrey. Yeah. But he's still a great guy. He still supports this podcast. And... That is all that we have to say about him. That's right. All right, folks. Until next time. You're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. 